New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. This hour we'll be exploring the nature of creativity, what it means to be creative, how we can be creative, and what can get in our way of being creative. Dr. Eric Mizell is a licensed family therapist, a creativity coach, and author of more than 40 books. He also conducts writing workshops. His books include Natural Psychology, The New Psychology of Meaning, and Life Purpose Bootcamp, the eight-week breakthrough plan for creating a meaningful life. Join us for the next hour as we explore the nature of creativity with our guest, Dr. Eric Mazel. I'm Roger Houston, and I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Eric Mazel, welcome. Hello, Roger. Great to be with you. This really is a delight because what a wonderful subject to spend an hour speaking on, on creativity. And I imagine what uh, a wonderful occupation it must be to be a creativity coach. <laughs> if my clients do their work, then it's a wonderful occupation. But as you know, it's often hard to get our creative work done. So I'm working with folks who get stuck, who have difficulties with the marketplace, who have emotional ups and downs. So the work is indeed wonderful, but not necessarily easy. Now, how did you begin your life as a creativity coach? Well, the long story is I started as a little science boy when I was young. I thought I would be in science, but then I discovered I only liked the metaphors of science, not actually doing calculus and physics. After I got out of the Army, I got one of those degrees that one gets when one doesn't know what to do, and that was a degree in philosophy. But then I started writing my first novel when I was 24. I realized, or it came upon me, that I was going to be a writer. That didn't pan out in terms of dollars. I wrote excellent books, but wasn't able to support a family on that. So I retooled as a therapist in my early 30s, became a California-licensed marriage and family therapist, and decided to work exclusively with creative and performing artists. I was interested in their issues, my issues. And I don't think anyone was working with artists specifically back then. This was before famous books like The Artist's Way and what have you came out. This was sort of a new occupation. Then, very rapidly, I realized I didn't like the therapy model. I didn't believe I was dealing with mental disorders, but rather with the problems of living that creative people face. So I segued out of therapy to something I called creativity consulting, because at that time, coaching hardly existed. This is quite a while ago. 
And then when coaching became a popular word, then I moved from creativity consulting to creativity coaching. And that's what I've been doing for 20 or 25 years now. So it's interesting that uh, you started out as an, uh, wanting at least to be a novelist and, uh, and found it a challenge in terms of the marketplace. And that really makes me wonder, you know, whether you feel that creative endeavor of that kind, that is of the artistic kind, is um, possible for everyone or is it what traditionally we think of uh, is creativity really being something reserved for the special few? I think there's a sense in which a person can be, let's call it everyday creative and make their pumpkin soup more creatively or do this or that more creatively. In fact, I think creativity has become that stand-in word for the human potential movement. I think we talked about human potential in one way in the 60s and 70s, and now I think creativity becomes the kind of word that stands for manifesting potential. So we all want to manifest potential. So I think everyone can be creative in that sense. Now, the difference is when you self-identify as an artist, when you decide that you're in one of those disciplines, whether it's dance or poetry or film writing or what have you, then you take on all of the obligations and difficulties of that discipline and something very different changes then. A, you have to work in a form. You can't be just everyday creative. You actually actually have to finish a book or finish a film. You have to work in a form, and then you have to sell the thing. And so uh, that's not really uh, everybody's uh, speciality to both finish large projects and then sell those projects. Anybody can be an everyday creative person. I think it takes a, a special set of whether to call it skills or personality traits or motivational places in one, to become the kind of creative person who does big work and manages to sell that work. You spoke of the human potential movement and creativity being uh, really at the foundation of that. But I wonder what you might see as the difference, if you do see any difference, between self-expression and creativity. Well, creativity has three definitions, typically. One is innovation, one is problem-solving, and one is manifesting potential. In the business world, when we talk about creativity in business, which is a catchphrase, that's typically about problem-solving and innovation. But I think the kind of creativity that you and I are talking about is the manifesting potential creativity. And it's really not so easy to do. It sounds easy to do. When you're five years old, you know how to scratch out a drawing and maybe you enjoy your drawing and maybe your parents put your drawing up on the refrigerator. But that's not the grown-up finished work. It doesn't put us in the lineage that we want to be in because I think creative folks of the sort we're talking about fall in love with a discipline early on. They fall in love with reading a book or seeing a film or hearing music five or six or seven, you're the kid sitting in the corner reading a book no matter what's going on around you. So you've fallen in love with something and now you're in a lineage. And you want to be whatever your lineage is, whether it's Jane Austen or Dostoevsky or whatever your lineage is, you want your place at that table. So you've set the bar very high. It's not just manifesting potential. It's really to be excellent dash great. And that's not so easy to do. If it were just about expressing oneself well, everybody who sends an email, in a certain sense, expresses themselves. 
we're setting the bar much higher than that when we talk about creativity. I think we are, because really creativity points to something, some dimension that is involved that is beyond our ordinary personality, that is beyond our familiar sense of self. And self-expression, I think, tends to be the expression of our familiar identity. So I think there is a difference there. And uh, I like that you pointed to, you know, the uh, childhood and earlier times in our lives as being an indicator of whether that nascent potential um, might be there or not in a particular individual. Uh, I mean, the word genius, for example, comes, as you know, from uh, the, the Roman, the Latin uh, really meaning a tutelary deity or guiding spirit. And there's another question, you know, does everybody have a guiding spirit or is a guiding spirit that is a genius really the reserve of a special few? Well, if by guiding spirit you mean something external to us, I'm an activist atheist, so I probably don't believe in guiding spirit in one sense. I believe that we don't get our brain quiet enough usually to do good work or to have good thoughts bubble up. And so the way I would say it is most people's brains are quite noisy, what Buddhists would call monkey mind. And when that happens, every thought grabs neurons. That's what a thought is. So most folks are having their billions of neurons grabbed by virtue of thinking one small thought and another small thought. I think what a creative person can do, part of a creative person's brilliance, is even if their mind is noisy here and there, they manage to quiet it in the service of having ideas bubble up. There's a way in which they go into the trance of working, go into flow, whatever language you want to call it, they get quiet. And it's out of that quietness. And whether that's guiding spirit or what have you, I still think it's their own brain, so to speak. It's their own brain and... Very often, they can't get quiet when they want to. They can't order up quietness. So they may have to sit there and preamble in noise. They may have to sit there in a noisy, their own noisy inner environment until they can settle, sort of like if you shake up a snow globe. I think most of us are like shaking snow globes, and then we have to settle ourselves in order for good ideas to bubble up. I think so, absolutely, yes. You know, another word um, from the Greek is the muse, of course, and people often speak, whether it's figuratively or literally in, in their mind, about um, having a muse. And, and you said, by the way, that you were uh, an atheist. And uh, for me, the notion of guiding spirit doesn't necessarily mean some external spirit, but it certainly does mean a deeper dimension of my own humanity. Uh, and I think that is also true with the notion of muse. But Muse actually originally meant to reflect, to muse, to reflect upon, to ponder, to wonder. So that really connects with what you're saying about the, uh, the quiet mind. It does, and I offer up clients what I call ceremonial bridges into that quietness. Because, um, as I say, we're noisy generally. We're not just noisy. Let me make a side point. All day long, we're supposed to get things right. That's the way we're supposed to be in the world. We're supposed to drive on the correct side of the road and pick up our kids at three and make sure the, the garden is weeded and just do things right. And then somehow a moment is supposed to come where we have real permission to make mistakes and messes. So that's what the creative process is. It's real permission 
not just intellectual permission, but whole body visceral permission to go try to write a novel for two years that may turn out to be a mess. It's not easy to get that permission from oneself to spend that many good hours on something that may not work out. That's why I think we need a ceremonial bridge into getting quiet. And one of the bridges I suggest is just deep breathing, five seconds on the inhale, five seconds on the exhale, and saying, I'm completely stopping, meaning I'm completely stopping my need to get things right. Mm, I think people will love hearing that. I mean, the just the message that it's actually not necessary to get things right all the time, I think, can be really quite liberating. And what you're also pointing to is the value of limit. That is the value of limitation, our own limitations. How limitation can actually serve us. People write sonnets. Now, a sonnet is a very specific, limited form of poetry. Why do people do that? Why limit themselves in that way? Because the limit actually somehow opens up a capacity for freedom. I think that's what you're speaking to. And also limits deal with the problem of fragmentation. Many of my clients have thousands upon thousands of notes and ideas and what have you. Until they name a thing, they're stuck. I'm speaking with Dr. Eric Maisel, author of Life Purpose Bootcamp, the eight-week breakthrough plan for creating a meaningful life. If you'd like to know more about the work of Dr. Mizell, you can go to his website, ericmizell.com. That's Eric, E-R-I-C, Mizell, M-A-I-S-E-L.com. Or you can get there on the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Roger Houston, and you're listening to New Dimensions. I'm speaking with Dr. Eric Mazel, author of Life Purpose Bootcamp, the eight-week breakthrough plan for creating a meaningful life. Eric, before the break, we were speaking about limits and beginning to speak of uh, the value of limits, actually. And I was reminded uh, of an artist called Phil Hansen, who developed nerve damage and a shaky hand from so much concentrative work on the pointiest style, you know, painting a picture with tiny dots. And so what did he do? He embraced the shake. I love that. He actually started using larger scale canvases and bigger materials, and he started dipping his feet 
in paint. I'm walking on the canvas. And then he decided to use just $1 worth of supplies. So what he is showing us with that is that our limitations can actually drive our creativity. Sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? But I think they can. And I'm sure you must have experienced this many times with your clients. The example I always use is Matisse when arthritis overtook him moving to paper cutouts and making collages, which then became world famous. And he had to deal with limitations and change. It's actually an oddity. It's interesting to me how many artists have to deal with chronic pain, all sorts of disabilities that force them to, A, figure out how to do their art with that chronic pain, but B, also how to organize their day around their limitations. Yes. I spend a lot of time with artist clients helping them actually just organize their day because, as you know, most artists often need a day job. They have other responsibilities in life. And one of their complaints is that they can't get to their work. So I advise them to institute a morning creativity practice. I think for a lot of artists, it's imperative that they carve out this extra hour before their real day starts to get their creative work done, that they then not scorn small increments of time during the day if 20 minutes arises here or 20 minutes arises there to make use of that. In other words, to spend the day very mindfully in the understanding that they may not get their creative work done if they're not better organized than most human beings are because they're trying to do so many things in life, namely earn a living to the right and also do great creative work to the left. And that requires a lot of old-fashioned scheduling, planning, routines. Those, I think, are rather sacred words in an artist's life, things like routine and regularity, because it's necessary. It is necessary, absolutely, yes. What would you say to someone who comes to you and says, you know, I don't know why, I mean, I want to write, but I don't think anyone's going to want to read what I say. No one's. Re why should anyone listen to me? Or why should anyone actually look at my paintings more than anybody else's? There are thousands of artists and writers out there. What difference is my voice going to make? I have different kinds of answers to that. The first kind of answer is a cognitive answer. That's not a thought that serves you. You need to take charge of your thoughts better than that. As the Buddhist said, get a grip on your mind. It's not serving you to say something like, I wonder if my art ultimately matters, or I wonder if anyone will be interested. Because we're not really looking at the truth or falsity of a thought, but rather whether the thought serves you, which is a different idea. Your thought may be true, so to speak. Maybe 27 million people will not read your short story. That may be a true thought, but that may not be a thought that serves you to think that no one will be interested. So there's the cognitive answer of really trying to think thoughts that serve you and identifying those kinds of thoughts as thoughts that don't serve you. And then there's the existential answer, which is you have to decide to matter. One of the things I'm interested in is the paradigm shift from seeking meaning to making meaning. The idea that meaning is not out there somewhere at the top of a mountain or at some guru's feet but rather that it's a subjective psychological experience. If you want the subjective psychological experience of meaning, if you want life to feel meaningful, you have to do those things that provoke that experience. And if for you one of those things is writing or painting or singing or what have you, then you are doing it not just to make a thing, not just to have a performance, you're doing it 
so that you can have the experience of meaning. And there's hardly anyone who doesn't think that the experience of meaning is a valuable thing. So we're speaking really there of, of where the motivation for your creative process comes from, aren't we, in the sense of... Uh, well, you were speaking earlier of, again, in childhood of people having a, a natural tendency towards one particular form or another and following that. Uh, so it's not an idea that's being imposed upon a person from the outside necessarily, by either by their parents or by their own mind, but a natural arising that they actually then have to have the discipline to follow. It's a natural arising, and it also can run its course. It can also not necessarily be the thing that you now do 40 years later. That's why I tell clients that they need a menu of meaning opportunities. They need multiple life purpose choices. Rather than getting stuck in that singular framework of I have one life purpose or there is one meaning to life, I think it's very important that folks come to the idea of a menu of such possibilities. Because let's say that you fell in love with dance when you were five, and now you've had your, your two hip transplants, and you can't really be the dancer you had meant to be. That better not mean that you can't have meaning in your life. That had better not mean that you can't have creativity in your life. That's why you need to know the other things that may also provoke the experience of meaning and that might also satisfy your creative urge. Folks find that very difficult to move from that primary place of meaning, that still being a dancer, that identity piece of being a dancer, to even being able to broach some other idea about what to try now. It's one of the things I have to help clients with, and it's a very painful for clients to open up to the possibility that X has actually run its course, and now it's time for Y. Well, of course, it's a shift of identity, and that's why it's painful, because you know it's really asking you to let go of a familiar sense of self and to open, actually to open to the unknown. To open to the unknown and to let go of multiple dreams and aspirations and hopes. Those are powerful things. Uh, there, there are a few writers who haven't already prepared their, their Nobel Prize-winning speech or actors who haven't accepted their Academy Award in their mind. People have dreams for themselves, and those dreams are finally over. When you say to yourself, I can no longer do this thing, I have to do the next thing. So yes, you're losing the identity piece, but you're also closing the door on long-held dreams, and that's another very painful place. Absolutely, yes. You know, I'm reminded again, actually, of uh, Matisse, who you mentioned uh, a few moments ago, because although he stayed broadly within the same field of uh, painting, the way he painted changed every few years and dramatically. You know, he was one of the uh, primary fauve painters at one period, 1905, 1906, something like that. Uh, and yet, uh, 30, 40 years later, he was, he was cutting paper cutouts, you know, and we have that wonderful series on jazz. And then at the very end of his life, what did he do? Not painting at all. He designed a chapel. And for Matisse, that chapel, which is in Vence, in Provence, that chapel, he said, was the summation of his life's work. And yet it had nothing, it apparently had nothing to do with everything else. So I think he's a wonderful example of someone who's willing to change horses, 
partly because of necessity, in his case, health. And because he can deal with the anxiety of change. One of the ways we learn to deal with anxiety is to repeat ourselves. If we've dis- I love that. If we've discerned how to do a certain kind of stripe painting, and now we know that we can produce that same stripe painting with thinner stripes or different colors, we know exactly how to do that, then we no longer provoke any anxiety in ourselves, and the creative process has gotten calm, but unfortunately, mechanically calm, and we don't get to grow. So it's one of the, repeating ourselves is one of the traps of the creative person. I think you were speaking exactly to someone who didn't, who refused to be caught in that trap. There's the apocryphal story of the great Japanese painters who at certain points in their career would burn all of their previous work so as not to be held hostage by what they had done previously. And it's a brilliant idea, but how many people can actually deal A, with the loss of probably a lot of good work, but also the anxiety of truly going into the unknown, not into some fake, just some rhetorical unknown, but the real unknown of not knowing what you're doing next. I'm reminded again of of the Tibetans who spend weeks creating a sand mandala only at the end to dissolve the whole thing. Um, And what that's saying, of course, is that there is a degree of detachment between the artist, in that case, and the piece of work. That in some way, even though you're pouring everything into it, there's there's also a letting go. That's right. And and I say it in two different ways. One is that you want to show up and not attach to outcomes, that the main work is showing up. And then I also say that there's a dance of attachment and detachment because I think that there is some attachment necessary too. I think we're really investing ourselves in the enterprise. We're throwing ourselves into it. I think we want to care. I think we want it to be important to us. I think we want it to matter, comma. And then we also want to know how to detach and when to detach. One of the difficulties the creative folks face is finishing things. They get to the 98% place And then the specter of having to show it in the world, having to sell it, getting pushback, getting criticism, getting rejection, all of that prevents them from actually saying, I'm done, even though the piece may be done. This is another place where a creative person has to understand the necessary detachment that's required of them, because if they don't detach from that piece, they can spend 15 years on their memoir, changing a word here, changing a word there so as to not have to experience rejection or any problems in the marketplace. But that means they don't get to move on to something else wonderful and interesting. Although it may also be that they're such perfectionists that they can never stop. You know, in French, there's a word called bonarding from the French painter Bonard, who is, for me, one of the greatest painters of all time. But Bonard used to creep into the museums where his paintings were exhibited to add one more touch to the painting. He couldn't let go of it, you know. That's a different... uh... I think many collectors have experienced that problem, the danger of having the artist come over (laughs) and see the painting on the wall and uh, have to tie the uh, the painter's arms down so that he doesn't change the painting on the wall. (laughs) It's a not uncommon feeling because we change. 
even our eyesight may change. What we thought was, what was red to us, what was a certain crimson 10 years ago, may be a different hue today. So um, that's one of, the, one of the problems is finishing work and allowing it to be. I'm speaking with Dr. Eric Mizell, author of Life Purpose Bootcamp, the eight-week breakthrough plan for creating a meaningful life. If you'd like to know more about the work of Dr. Mazel, you can go to his website, ericmazel.com. That's Eric, E-R-I-C, Mazel, M-A-I-S-E-L.com. Or you can get there on the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Roger Houston, and you're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Eric Mazel, author of Life Purpose Bootcamp, the eight-week breakthrough plan for creating a meaningful life. Eric, we were speaking uh, just before the break about the um, movement to and fro between attachment and detachment, the way in which both of these actually play an integral role in uh, any artistic or creative endeavor. So uh, attachment, that is being deeply absorbed in or attached to uh, the particular creative endeavor one is involved in, whatever it may look like, usually, if not always, must involve what we call passion. Could you speak to the notion of passion and also how you uh, encourage that in the people you work with? I talk a lot about meaning in my work with clients, and often that has to be retranslated into passion language and the synonyms of passion, whether it's curiosity, enthusiasm. There are all sorts of words in the family of passion that are very important. And it is, in fact, the case, I do believe, that creative effort comes out of a place of love. That doesn't mean that the creative person is a loving person, necessarily. We know that there are um, monstrous creative folks who are not necessarily loving in the rest of their lives. But I think the creative act does come from that place of love. We are in a dispassionate society that doesn't do a wonderful job of encouraging passion. We're told to draw within the lines. We're told not to show displays of affection. We're told many things that don't encourage passion. So... The flame of passion tends to flicker out in the lives of most people. And that natural passion that they experienced at five or six or seven or eight, they no longer experience at 30. Life has worn them down. So we have to dream up ways to rekindle that passion. One of the best ways, and we've talked about this already a couple of times in different contexts, is to mentally and emotionally return to being five, six, and seven, reminding yourself how much you loved reading in the corner or being in that darkened theater, watching a movie or watching the Nutcracker on stage or whatever it was. That helps an adult 
remind themselves of where the passion resides. But however it is that you figure out to do it, it is your job to rekindle that passion because the work can't be done with mere interest. The work can't be done dispassionately. A, that's just not enough juice. And B, it doesn't allow you to do it over the long haul because the work is just too hard. You can't spend two years working on a novel just out of mere interest. The source of the energy for that work has to come from a deeper place than interest. So you really need to ask, what is it that really lights my fire? Uh, but how do you work with that question? I mean, you know, for me, it's I get people writing that. I, to free write for half an hour without thinking, what really lights my fire is, what do you do with them? I think I move it more to the meaning place. If they sort of instantly get the rekindling fire thing and if they understand how to do that for themselves, wonderful. But if they're not getting it, I personally, I don't stay there. I move to the meaning place, that it's your responsibility to don the mantle of meaning maker, that you're not going to be experiencing life as meaningful or purposeful or passionate if you don't do what the existentialists say, namely treat your life as a project and get to work on your project. So I think I start to come from the drill sergeant place rather than the loving place because I think it impresses people that they're not going to make themselves proud by their life unless they do the things that they've always intended to do and that they know they ought to be doing. So I return to that place of value-based meaning-making as the touchstone rather than the passion place. So, but some action or something needs to happen for that meaning to be stirred. I'm thinking of uh, these lines by the great poet, Spanish poet Antonio Machado, who said, um, I thought the fire was out. I stirred the ashes. I burnt my fingers. I love that. Yes, but stirring I, the ashes is what you're speaking to. And I, I say it slightly differently. It's the same idea. I often use the Tchaikovsky quote, which is, I'm inspired every fifth day, but I only get that fifth day if I show up the other four. So I keep returning it to ceremony, regularity, routine, and practice. I keep returning it to practice. Then maybe you won't be inspired today. Maybe there's no flame today. You still have to be there. Yes, you do still have to be there. You know, Chuck Close, the artist, said, you know, inspiration is for amateurs. The rest of us just get to work. Exactly. Yeah. So we're saying exactly the same thing. Yeah, yeah. And for me... Process is a very important word. I, I sort of stand behind that word in my own being and with clients. And process means many sorts of things, including the reality of making mistakes and messes, but also the reality that only a percentage of your work is going to turn out well. Folks do not want to hear that, but that's the truth about process. How many of Bob Dylan's 463 trillion songs are wonderful? 13, 19, 24... Pundits who claim to know will say that Beethoven's first, third, fifth, seventh, and ninth symphonies are better than his second, fourth, sixth, and eighth. And I don't know if that's true, but what I know is you can't do nine without eight. You can't do eight without seven. You can't skip the things that don't work. And that's what most would-be creative people want to do. They want to skip the things that aren't going to work. And you can't skip those things. You have to 
spend the two years on that novel, even if it never comes alive. And no one wants to hear that, but that's the reality of process. An excellent example of what I mean here is the fellow who wrote um, Memoir of a Geisha. He wrote that book first in the third person. The geisha does this, the geisha does that. Spent some years writing it. When it was done, he read it to himself, and he realized it was stone-cold dead. There was nothing there of interest. Most creative folks will call themselves a bad name at that point. They'll say, I'm an idiot for having spent these two years on this project. He did something dramatically wonderful. He said, now let me try it in the first person. I'm going to invest more years in this project because I still believe in it. I still have a passion for it. I just didn't make it work the first time. This is wonderful what you're, you're pointing to here because, of course, for all of us, it's so tempting to give up when we think something's really not working. But your emphasis on process here is really crucial because the process is leading us where we do not yet know. So... The, and can't know. And can't know until we're there. And so the writer of the uh, novel you just mentioned, uh, Memoirs of a Geisha, I think, had no idea that this needed to be in the first person when he started in the third. Uh, but he had to run the whole course of that. Yes. In order to get there, you know. I, I just want to add one thing, and that is when we say he didn't know or when we say we don't know, I think it's a little more complicated than that because I think we get tingles down the spine. I think we get glimmers of the thing not working. And then there's the always the question, should I abandon this because I know it's not working or should I persist for years to make it work? And there can't be a principle there. The principle can't be always abandon or always stick mm -hmm, it out. Mm -hmm. You have to feel it through in mm -hmm. each situation because sometimes, th sometimes there is no reason to throw more good words after bad. Maybe this is a project to put aside after 22,000 words or what have you. My headline, though, is although there's no principle, my headline is err on the side of completing things. If you have to make a guess, an intuition in a given moment, whether to finish a thing or not to finish a thing, Finish it, because you learn so much by finishing things, and you also then learn by putting it out into the marketplace, putting it out into the world. We never get a complete loop on a project until we've put it out into the world and, and gotten what Virginia Woolf called an echo, till we get something back from the world that helps us understand what we've wrought. And you mentioned there that the kind of intuition, the sense that one has of whether to pour more words into this or not, is actually a bodily knowing. So this is not a thought we're speaking of here, I should end this, I should not end this, but a visceral sense, really, that if we listen to it, and that's the whole key, because in my case, certainly, I've sometimes and quite often not listened and had to go a long way um, and we want to override the feeling, too, because yeah, we don't want to give up. Exactly. We want to get it done, so we override the feeling. And I, like you, I've done whole books that ought to have been stopped at the 22,000-word mark because I just didn't want to give up. I didn't want to give in to the fact that it wasn't working. I just need to you know, put it out there that actually mistakes have led to the discovery of so many things in our world. I mean, 
DNA, penicillin, aspirin, x-rays, Teflon, Velcro, nylon, cornflakes, Coca-Cola, chocolate chip cookies were discovered by mistake. So... Really, uh, we need to allow ourselves, don't we? There's probably nothing else that connects that list except that they arose through a mistake. Completely. (laughs) Absolutely, yes, yes. But that involves a certain degree of humility too, don't you think? And I think that is also fundamental to the creative process. It's an inter- interesting whether it's humility or it's actually one one face of of a certain kind of healthy narcissism because the word narcissism has no particular meaning without an adjective in front of it. There's unhealthy narcissism where we're just arrogant and grandiose, and then there's the healthy narcissism that developmental psychologists say all children should acquire, that strong sense of self, strong sense of instrumentality. And so in a way, I think it's in a way a healthy narcissism to say, eh, this didn't work, but I'm so well put together, I'm so good at what I do, that the next thing will work. And it's most people who have major successes, as you say, have had major failures, and they just don't take them seriously. And personally. And personally. They don't take it in. Yeah, they maybe drink too much for a while, or they have several bad days, or, or it's not like they don't have a reaction to the failure. We all have reaction to failures. But they get back up on the horse quickly, and they're really back up there. They're not tented, they're not riding side saddle, if that's the right equestrian metaphor. They're really on the horse again fully. And I think that's actually a feature of a certain kind of healthy narcissism. That's a really great point. I really appreciate that, yes. Uh, and it, it actually brings up the whole notion of confidence. Being willing to stand by what one is doing, you know, uh, and, and unless and until it becomes clear that another way is necessary. But yes, that is a, a form of healthy, um, healthy ego structure, really. That's right. And many of my clients um, have trouble feeling confident in doing the work, but also feeling confident in putting the work out into the world. So confidence is needed in both regards. I'm here with Dr. Eric Mazel, author of Life Purpose Bootcamp, The Eight-Week Breakthrough Plan for Creating a Meaningful Life. I'm Roger Houston, and you're listening to New Dimensions. I'm Roger Houston, and I'm here with Eric Mazel, speaking on the theme of 
creativity. And Eric, something we haven't spoken of, a word we haven't, I don't think, even mentioned, is the word originality. Can people really be original? You know, it's not a word that I think about much, and it's not a word that comes up much in my conversations with clients. I think if it were to come up, I would consider it a mental trap kind of word. I would advise a client that that's probably not a word that serves them to be thinking and that it sets the bar in a funny place because, as we said before, creativity has multiple definitions, one of which is innovation, but innovation is more a thing for the business world than for the creative person. Innovation, originality, it's not what the creative person is after, I don't think. I think the creative person is after having a spot in a lineage, being part of a tradition, and that's different from innovating or being original. It's also the case that if you're in that tradition, you naturally want to move the tradition forward. You want to, so to speak, do the next right thing in that tradition or the next interesting thing in that tradition. So I think that is where originality and innovation arises in a person's being. But I think I would still get them off that word and return them to showing up and doing the work. I really love what you say about uh, being part of a lineage because all of us are actually part of a lineage, whether we know it or not. And the lineage is the human race and civilization. And we also live in a matrix of this particular time. And I think this is why, you know, the same idea can pop up in different places around the same time. Uh, because we live in a, in a collective sea of ideas and inspirations, if you like. So, Often something can feel as if I've thought it for the first time. Uh, but then, of course, I realized that... Some pre-Socratic. Yes. thought it for... <laughs> that's right. You know, two and a half thousand years ago. And that, uh, that not only that, it was born out of this particular time. And, you know, I was thinking, for example, uh, Gutenberg, as we know, created or invented the printing press, but not out of thin air. Because all the ingredients for the printing press had actually been in existence for centuries. He had the insight to put the ingredients together. You know, the screw press was traditionally used for pressing oil. He turned it to another thing. So was he really original? Well, what he did is put all these different parts together in a brilliant new way. And I think that's what we do. And often... Um a creative person, especially scientists, are stuck because the, the superintegration that they want to do just is impossible. Einstein can't know string theory before their string theory. He can know a lot of things, and he can come up with E equals mc squared, but he can't know what's only known 50 years hence. So scientists often get stuck in a corner of a field because it's not possible for them to do the huge super-integrating work that they've been hoping to do. So that's one of the poignancies of the creative enterprise, is that sometimes we can't manage to pull together the disparate things that we wish we could pull together because it's just not available to us yet. That's another place where we have to look at a project and say to ourselves, golly, it was wonderful of me to try, but I'm not going to succeed here. <laughs> 
You've touched, I think, on something important here about the whole notion or, or nature of creativity and the imagination. When you speak of string theory and Einstein not even being, a, being able to speak of that because it's in the future, and yet I think what, cre what creativity does, it opens us up to the future because it opens us up to potentiality. Potentiality, that which has not yet been manifest. And to be open to what is potential, we need receptivity. We, and you spoke of this earlier, the importance of stillness, of silence, of being receptive. And I'd like us to, to dwell on this for a, a few moments, these, this last segment of our talk here, because I think this is so important. Let me translate it a little bit in, into my language. Um, people, creative people understand that they need imagination in order to get their work done, but what is imagination? Well, I think a fruitful way to think of it is what's called in, in the thinking sciences divergent thinking. That is the idea that you can think of a salmon over here and a skyscraper over here and put them together and end up with a salmon-shaped skyscraper. Well, that kind of thinking is not much lauded in, in common society. It's not much asked of you to put a salmon and a skyscraper together. You're more to keep the skyscraper separate from the salmon. So that means you have to fight against your cultural baggage, your whole history of drawing inside the lines in order to be imaginative. And I think, to piggyback on what you're saying, I think it requires a certain permission, a certain opening, a certain understanding that there's a task here to pull things from different places together, that that's a task that we're not going to undertake unless we feel free enough to take that risk. risk. Yes, and perhaps even something more than just adding the pieces together. You know, uh, in Wordsworth's time in the early 1800s, the notion of associative thinking, which is what you're speaking of, was the common ground then. I mean, people called imagination and creativity the, the capacity to draw different disparate elements together. But Wordsworth thought differently. He thought that actually, no, there's, there's something in the human being that can create something more than simply the sum of parts. It's more than the sum of its parts. A poem by Wordsworth has, some, has, has something that in some way has not really quite been put together, put together before. And that, that capacity, again, I suppose, touches on our original um, discussion at the beginning there on genius, on, on that dimension of hu our humanness, which is below or below the conscious mind. Something, imagination itself, really, as being a, a dimension of experience that opens us to possibilities beyond rational thinking. I think all creative people have had that experience yes. of doing really good work, having something new arise. I think that's also a visceral tingle down the spine kind of experience where we like applaud ourselves. We go, wow, that was a really good paragraph or that was a really good whatever. Wherever that came from, that was really good. I don't think you can ask for that. I, th I think we're both saying the same thing. You can't beg for it. I think the French have a line about 
one great line of each poem comes from the heavens. It's not really the poet's line. It comes from somewhere. Well, it comes from the poet, but you can't just ask for it. You can't beg for it. So it's why I keep returning my clients to the task of showing up, the activity of showing up, doing the work, understanding the challenges that they're going to face doing the work, not giving up, believing that what they're doing matters, having all kinds of affirmations for themselves to keep them going through difficulties, including difficulties with the marketplace. I completely agree that there is such a thing as brilliant work, original work, new things under the sun. We just can't ask for them. We can't ask them. We can make ourselves available to them. And the very first way is, I think, what you've been emphasizing all the way through here is show up. Um, Hemingway called the white page the white bull. The white page for a writer is frightening because it's empty and we have no idea what's going to come come out of us onto it. And it's the same with a, writer, a painter with the canvas. But we do have to sit down there for a period of time and face that face that white bull. So there is the work. There is the work of, of sitting down and doing it. But I think there's also that other kind of uh, capacity, which is Keats, the poet, called it negative capability, you know, which is to allow ourselves to be in an almost dreamlike state where we're receptive to what we do not yet know, lounging on our sofa for half an hour, and for me, you know, most of my books have come when I've been out walking. The idea for the book has been have come has come when I've been walking, not thinking about books. So I think there really is a place here. For Mozart, it was carriage rides. Yes, absolutely. I'd like to piggyback on that because when I was talking earlier about a morning creativity practice being so vital for my clients and I think for creative folks. One of the things you're saying connects to that very clearly. I think there are three important reasons why a morning practice is so important. A, the regularity and routine of it is great and you'll get a lot of work done. B, you'll have the experience of having made some meaning on that day and the rest of the day can be half meaningless and you won't get depressed. It's like you're building up meaning capital by turning to your real work first thing. But the C connects to what you were saying and that is by turning to your creative work first thing you get to make use of your sleep thinking. That is, you get to make use of what your brain's been working on all night long, your dreaming brain, your thinking brain, and that's completely valuable material, which if you don't turn to your work first thing, you're not going to have access to. What a great point that is, Eric. Yes, we've run out of time, but we really do all need to give time and space to dreaming. I've been speaking with Dr. Eric Mazel, author of Life Purpose Bootcamp, the eight-week breakthrough plan for creating a meaningful life. If you'd like to know more about the work of Dr. Mazel, you can go to his website, ericmazel.com. That's E-R-I-C-M-A-I-S-E-L.com. Or you can get there on the New Dimensions website. I'm Roger Houston. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3531. 
New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.